This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. If you missed it last night, uh, we're all over it this morning. And what we don't know is whether um, it gets elaborated upon and there's more details. But Israel and Hamas have agreed to pause fighting. And But both sides try and get something out of this, as you might imagine. Israel is going to release 150 Palestinian women and teenagers held in Israeli detention. Now, they've been convicted of crimes. We could go through all 150 and say, sounds valid, sounds dodgy. We could do those things, but they're getting 150 back of women and teenagers. Israel was very specific, saying that's the line that we draw, women and teenagers. Meantime, uh, 50 hostages uh, go back the other way to Israel to be reunited with their families. How they are is of, of great debate. They've been away since October 7th. It's now November 22nd. You can imagine, because we've all put ourselves in these shoes and these clothes and thinking we've been in underground tunnels. Remember it was about four and a half weeks ago that the two older women came up and were released as hostages. And uh, the one woman said, I slept on a mattress uh, they gave me, you know, cheese and vegetables and she looked OK and she's in her, her 80s and she got to leave and her husband did not. But we don't know which 50 are getting released. But the concept seems to be really people that are younger and people that are more elderly and frail. That'll be the release of the 50. But we don't know the where and the when right now. This has just been business as usual. It's getting towards one o'clock in Israel this morning. Um, and a lot of the fighting has still continued. So until there's some element of both sides agreeing, this is the time that it stops with all the details Im- imaginable, like the deal every time I thought, OK, that's it. Let's put this to bed. There's a bow put on all the details. There was one other about, well, you're not allowed to follow us with drones for six hours. That's Hamas telling Israel that because we want to be able to once all the hostages are released, Israel has no reason not to flood the tunnels with seawater, blow up every single tunnel they know where it is. They haven't done that yet, as you can imagine, because they've got it, they've got Israeli hostages. This was not this was all done by design by Hamas on October 7th. It's one thing to massacre Israelis and then cut and run and get on out, but they took the hostages with them to have leverage so that Israel wouldn't destroy their entire terrorist infrastructure once they got back to downtown Gaza. Those are big factors right there. One uh, prescient clip I saw last night flipping all around the channels to see the reaction to this, and a lot of it was the American shows, was Chris Cuomo on News Nation. He had uh, a former Israeli ambassador on, Michael Oren. I thought he asked a really prescient question. It's not a brief question, but it's more a conversation than an interview, I think, on that show. Cuomo talking with Michael Oren. Have a listen to this. I would go with the feeling of uh, something's better than nothing. But what about the more sophisticated understanding of not getting all the hostages and the message this sends about the value of taking hostages and how you wind up getting what you want? How do you walk that line? It's very difficult. Let, let's start from the, you know, the beginning or the end. It doesn't matter. You're going to come back to the same word. The word is ceasefire. Hamas wants a ceasefire. A permanent ceasefire, not a five-day ceasefire. Why? Ceasefire means Hamas gets away with mass murder. It means Hamas wins. Then it can begin begin to rebuild its military force and start all over again. Its own leaders said, we're going to do this a second time, a third time, a fourth time. So they're not, they're not hiding it. And a ceasefire means Israel loses. We've got 250,000 people who are homeless. 
have been driven away from the borders. They had to evacuate. I don't know. Would you go back to those borders right now with, with your family, your kids, if, if Hamas is, is reorganizing on the other side and preparing the next attack? Very, very difficult. So it needs a ceasefire. So here, here's the danger for Israel. You get a five-day ceasefire, and then Hamas says, well, we'll release a few more in return for another five days. So, yeah, it, it is exactly like that. That ends up being a huge problem to consider. And if it all stops permanently, Hamas wins. And that's not what Israel wants at this particular point. Why? Because then they've just rewritten the playbook as to how you do terrorism, dot, 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 and get away with it. That has to be considerably concerning for Israel to watch and make sure that that doesn't happen. Meantime, what do the relatives of the hostages say? I thought this was critically uh, important uh, audio that I spotted last night. This gentleman named Omri Shivti, his brother, is one of the hostages taken by Hamas on October the 7th. But he's almost certain that he won't get him back. Why? He's in his 30s. He's he's potential like he's not young enough and he's not old enough. So out of 50 people, Shifty almost knows for sure that his brother's not going to be one of them returned. So your heart goes up hearing deal hostages return. And then you realize it's too small a number and he's not going to see his brother anytime soon. Like if it's a baby. So I understand they don't 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 know where is all the babies yet. Um, and what I understand that after that, um, it can be a few days, like each day after the, after these four days, uh, will be, if, if Hamas will need the, uh, still, they can bring more people like 10 days for each day after the four days, uh, if they need more time. So we hope and we, uh, believe that Idan is alive and he's okay and we will see him. And um, this is our feelings like for for the for the next days. I'm sure it's going to be very uh, uh, intense and uh, nervous. So he's hoping this goes well. So the next run or maybe the third or fourth run includes his brother. You can imagine how he feels at this point, like the data, the DNA, if you will, is just against his brother being one of these 50 people. And he knows that. But I, I think we should be crystal clear about this. This isn't a hostage exchange. I've kind of kind of makes my hair the hair stand up on my arms when I hear that. It's releasing innocent Israeli hostages in return for freeing convicted Palestinian terrorists. That's what Israel says. That's Israel's perspective. So there's no comparison on the two sides here. We could debate forever who was fairly convicted and who was not, but that's how Israel is is looking at this. So you can pray for the safe return of all the hostages. You can hope uh, terrorists. Uh, meet the proper fate before they can do more harm. But this is not a hostage exchange, and many people don't love this particular deal. I want to shift a little closer to home here because we had a fall economic statement from the federal government. Um, They're placing some big bets, not even in terms of the debt that they're thinking, well, we need to stagger uh, potential programs. We need to we're fine with accumulating more debt. In essence, I saw so many analysts yesterday say they're betting on the economy improving, and that is not a certainty. In fact, I'm not sure it's a better than 50% bet that the economy improves within the next year. You put any budget together, you do this for your family and your house, and everything's an exercise in optimism. How many people listening wait on a big home improvement project or get really stiff and nervous, even buying something like a, like a television? or a computer for their kid. 
or you got to trade in that car and get a new one. You feel that and you say, I hope everything stays the same for me in the next six months or 12 months or five years if you're making a big commitment. Federal government's hoping the same thing here. So there's upside, there's downside to some of the bets they made yesterday. One person who isn't terribly satisfied, doesn't feel the housing investments are ambitious enough. That's Toronto's mayor. Here's what Olivia Chow said yesterday about what she heard. I am encouraged that there is a blueprint similar to the city. The city is ready. We have a blueprint. We're ready to build. We have an ambitious plan. It's not ambitious enough. The billion dollars that are being offered across the country doesn't start till 2025. For Toronto, it'll be about 700 units. There is no discussion or mention about refugees, which is very disappointing. So there's a plan there. It's promising, but people need more, faster. Okay, two things on that. She's not wrong about that last sentence. One of them, to me, Liberal MPs, I'm worried they're taking Toronto voters for granted. Like they've already given up on the game. I'm not going to get reelected. I see the polls. I know what's happening. And so when they sprinkle money instead of flooding Toronto with money, make sure we understand Toronto voters are going to remember that come the next federal election. The other thing is this. And if it's one of those uncomfortable truths, so be it. More housing, no good. Doesn't matter whatsoever until we stop the constant flow of refugees, immigrants, students into this country. Those groups don't have a fair chance here right now. We want to be able to give pockets of them a fair chance. But if there's no system and there are no parameters and there's no hurdles to say you in, you not so much, we're never going to get a handle on all the housing that all of Canada needs. And the Canadians, okay, the people born here, we're allowed to say this, they need a home as well. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Can I just ask, has your heart lifted even slightly this morning with this news? Because it's it's the first glimmer of hope that we've seen. Do you feel in any way just a shade more optimistic? Full of optimistic and full of faith. Uh, from the 7th of October, my son Omar was kidnapped uh, by the Hamas. He was alive. He is alive. I know he's alive. We have a, a video that is kidnapped. We have also a photo. He's looking alive. He's looking well. Uh, no injured that uh, I can see. That's a gentleman named Shai Van Card. He was on Good Morning Britain just a couple hours ago, uh, hoping to see his brother again. He has been sent a picture and is hoping to see him. It's a day of some optimism, certainly, in this conflict between Israel and Hamas. We want to join Robert Berger right now, who's been great coming on with us, CBS correspondent from Tel Aviv. Robert, thank you for making the time for us. Good morning. We're obviously uh, waiting with considerable bated breath. We seem to know the terms of the arrangement between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas. What we don't know is when things are set to begin. We're getting towards mid-afternoon, your time. Is there any speculation or informed opinion as to when this uh, four-day ceasefire begins? Well, according to an Egyptian source, it's going to begin at 10 a.m. local time tomorrow, which would be... Uh, 3 a.m. over where you are. Uh, and so we're talking about, uh, you know, another 16 hours or so. The Israelis are, are supposed to get a list tonight of the first hostages that would be released, at least 10, maybe 12, maybe 15. 
This, of course, is going to be done in stages over the next four days of the ceasefire. And it does look like there's an incentive. I was reading last night, uh, there's an incentive for a longer pause in fighting. The Israeli government stated the release of every additional 10 hostages results in one additional day in the pause. But to to anybody's logic, uh, the risk there for Hamas is the fewer hostages they have until they have no hostages leaves them pretty vulnerable uh, to Israel stepping up their attacks. Yeah, well, you know, that works both ways. So what what the deal is, is that after this four-day ceasefire, Israel would give an additional day ceasefire uh, mm-hmm. for another 10 hostages. Remember, there's 237 hostages in Gaza. So that would, if mm-hmm. they did that each day, it would drag on probably for another 24, 20, 24 days or so feeling is that Hamas isn't going to agree to go that far. Those hostages are very valuable. Um, But it's quite possible that we would have maybe an additional five days and see up to 100 hostages released in exchange for 300 Palestinian, uh, mostly teenagers, as well as some women in Israeli jails. Israel's made a very firm commitment, haven't they, uh, that this isn't the end of the war. They're committed to eliminating Hamas. Um, and there's obviously people uh, that are that are waiting to see if indeed that's true. But that's been there. That was that was crystal clear yesterday in their statements, wasn't it? Right. So, yeah, Prime Minister Netanyahu saying this is a they don't even call it a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. They call it a pause and uh, that the war will continue at some point when this exchange of hostages ends. Because, as you said, um, Israel's goal is to destroy Hamas, and that hasn't been done yet. Certainly they've been damaged in the fighting, but destroying the group, if that actually remains the goal, is going to take uh, probably months. And Hamas is wanting back 150 Palestinians who are women and children. They've been convicted of crimes or or women or teenagers. They've been convicted and imprisoned. Was that do we know, was that a Hamas request that it be women and children or was or women and teenagers? Excuse me again. Or was that Israel saying we're not giving you men back? We'll give you women and children. I'm asking if we know whether um, one side chose that or the other. Well, I think we can speculate, but, you know, it's, it's a pretty reasonable deal. Uh, for Israel, because uh, just as a reminder, back in 2011, Israel traded uh, one Israeli soldier for 1,100 Palestinian prisoners, and these, these were these were hardcore uh, terrorists, if you will, been convicted on murder and terror charges. So I think you know it's pretty reasonable for Israel to release 300 uh, people that weren't convicted of murder or serious terrorism crimes. Wow. Robert, thanks so much. You filled in a lot of blanks for us here in Toronto. I greatly appreciate you making the time. Mm, sure thing. Thanks. Robert Berger joining us from CBS from Tel Aviv's, Av- Aviv's. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Maybe you've been following this uh, open AI Uh, drama to some extent. But last week on Friday, it looked like uh, the company OpenAI, one of the biggest um, innovators and purveyors 
of, in essence, artificial intelligence, ChatGPT falls under their umbrella as well, got rid of their CEO. He is back. Uh, with it. There was such an outcry about it, uh, not just from the media, but apparently from inside the walls itself. His name is Sam Altman. So we're going to get into this story and where the technology is going. And we're very pleased to bring on Mohit uh, Rajans, uh, joining us, media expert, joining us on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on, Mohit. Thanks for being uh, up with us. Uh- Good morning, Greg. What a soap opera. Uh, started Friday with Sam yeah. Alban's dismissal, and we're back almost yesterday. They finally dotted the I's, crossed the T's to bring Sam Altman back. Why, why was this such a massive story? Yeah, this became a, a tech drama story, almost like something that you would see uh, out of an HBO show. Because normally, when it comes down to technology, there's a few different types of people that take the headlines. The Elon Musks of the world, the Zuckerbergs of the the world. But just this last week, you're hearing all about OpenAI and Sam Altman because essentially he gathered a bunch of software engineers right before the development conference last week, said his said his thing about how he wants to take the company forward. And then the board fired him on the 20th and basically said, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You've made some mistakes and we would like to take it in a new direction. That caused a massive uproar and ripples around the tech business, so much so that you had two different sides. On one side, you had the normal user, like say yourself, that likes Mm -hmm. ChatGPT. You're thinking to yourself, does that mean that this is not going to work in the future? And then you've got the business people that are like, wait a minute, we just invested billions of money and dollars into this brand new tech company that nobody vetted until this point. Yeah, all those are massive factors. And I think any of us watching uh, AI with a cautious um, perspective on this, Mohit, are are looking and what we don't want is people either walking away from the industry, getting pushed out of the industry, who see the benefits of it, who who want to also, also embrace the good and ensure that there's more benefits than drawbacks for, for humanity, basically, to promote safe and ethical use of artificial intelligence. Would that be so? Yeah, that's a great point. I think Sam Altman has become a poster boy for somebody who's been able to answer the questions associated with why we need regulation in things like artificial intelligence. And people will continue to have great discussions when they see somebody like him sort of fighting for the man, so to speak. But let's be honest, Greg, there's a bad history of like senior male executives running tech companies and not really knowing what they're doing. And I don't mean to sort of call it out based on anything else other than the fact that this is a company that grew really fast, unregulated. It sparked a lot of, you know, they entered the chat, so to speak, when it comes down to the Mm -hmm. dominance of technology. And now it's, you know, there's so many problems ahead when it comes down to trying to figure out how AI can really function in our world that watching this drama unfold, it's just bad PR. When we talk about, we, we often, everybody says about almost every issue, uh, Mohit, hey, follow the money here. Was that a big factor here where Microsoft, oh, uh, yeah, Microsoft bringing him back, uh, you know, um, after after Altman was abruptly fired, there's all this drama, but they hear from investors as well who say, what are you guys doing? I want to make sure you're you're buttoned up like we thought you were when we put all this capital in. Does that factor in? Yeah, let me break that down very quickly. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft and Microsoft invested in OpenAI because of all of their tools, including ChatGPT. Microsoft was going to start to use things like OpenAI's tools within their own software. Think Excel, Microsoft Word, things we use on a daily basis. That was the happy marriage that people were anticipating. What ended up happening? 
was Sam went to Microsoft directly. That created a little bit of that money question that you were talking about, which is, well, wait a minute, does Microsoft now own this company or are they partners with it? And that's what caused people to go, wait, now we're now going that same circle where one or two companies are going to own all the big tech and we're never going to be able to decipher who's responsible for what. So the implications of this, while it seems all nerdy when it comes down to nerd politics and, and sort of technical politics, the truth is it has implications on the way that we are going to see AI in, introduced into our world over the next couple of years. Well, it feels that way already, doesn't it? But with just stuff like Grammarly, right? Like all of a sudden we open up our Gmail, we start writing and whether we knew it or not, or whether we click something or not, all of a sudden it's helping us, you know, write better sentences. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a pretty good speller. Uh, but sometimes you go so fast, you're like, oh, well, that's I don't want that person to think I don't know how to spell that word. And Grammarly's right there. Open, you know, artificial intelligence and open AI and chat GPT are just supplements to that extent, aren't they? Yeah, we're talking about building stacks in the way that we complete our efficiencies. So in English language, it's basically making things done faster, your emails faster, your writing faster, et cetera. That's what they are building. But of course, there's so many questions about regulations, teaching our kids how to use things properly, teaching your use tools. All of this, Greg, is just a distraction. I hope that OpenAI and AGI, et cetera, don't fall into this world where they try to hit the news cycle like social media did in the wrong way, because there's a mm. lot of positives still to have from this. Moed Rajan's our guest uh, media expert. A um, couple more for you. And, and one is specifically whether is open AI sort of the big mover and shaker in this industry? Are there other companies trying to are they sort of the, you know, the Coke and Pepsi? And there's a lot of other cola companies or the big three automakers and, and a lot of other companies are trying trying to slice into the big pie that they have. Well, OpenAI, let's not forget, is a non-for-profit. And so it, it deals in their 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 products in a very different way. They have DALI 2, which is the image generation, text to image generation, AI software that's out now, app that's out there. They've got ChatGPT. But of course, Google, Apple, uh, you know, everyone is in yeah. the game. Yeah. Well, Microsoft is in the game with OpenAI yep. and alone as well. They've got their own projects. And you'll see as they start to see all this bad PR start to unfold in the issue, we don't know if there are flaws in security. We don't know if they're being held accountable for the right reasons. Right now, it's being built so fast that the real need is for regulation. I almost feel like every federal government, Mohit, needs like a department that focuses on this. I, I've watched enough politicians uh, who don't know anything about healthcare talk to us about healthcare and say, do this, don't do that, or, or other economic issues. And so I'm not we want governments to regulate, but I want smart people who know the industry also to be involved in, in either advising them to regulate or just hire them themselves and let them do it. Yeah, I do believe that, unfortunately, in the technology business, we are very, very reactive when it comes down to trying to fix things once they're already out there. And this isn't something we can do with this type of technology. You know, there are kids that are using a lot of this stuff and for them to think that one day it can just be turned off well that changes the learning process the training process things are being built on open ai's tools not it's not just one thing that you download it's not like facebook where you log into yeah. it and just hope for the best so there, there's a lot of future implications but i just hope this this little blip this factor associated with the drama starts to go away because mm. we really have to excel right now and understand these products yeah we don't need turmoil in uh, in in an important and emerging industry uh, like we saw in the last four days but if it's settled and sam altman's uh, if he will one of the good guys then that's great mohit loved having you on thanks very much we'll do it again soon 
Thank you, Greg. Mohit Rajan's our guest. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. Again, I, I'm I'm a four out of ten for understanding uh, open AI and understanding what their p- presence in the market is. But I sure talk a lot about artificial intelligence in our own home, and you probably do in yours as well. What are we using it for? When are we using it without even knowing it at the same time? This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to move to this story because I know it ends up getting an awful lot of attention. You saw last week there was a push uh, for the provincial government. Uh, which is frozen tuition fees for universities and colleges in 2019 to ask for more. And colleges now are asking Ontario as well for a 5% tuition hike and a funding boost. And it might be the latter that's the most uh, significant of all those particular asks. So it's got some people talking. We obviously have a a lot of conversation about international students and how many there are. I want to welcome on Marquita Evans, who's the president of Colleges Ontario. It's great to have you on, and I really appreciate you making the time for this. Good morning, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I mentioned the funding boost, and that's the one thing is we look in, on the surface, Marquita, it looks great that, oh, you know, kids and parents don't have to pay any higher tuition than they paid in 2018. But the government's not exactly funding colleges or universities, for that matter, with the same oomph and the same percentage that they were. Can you walk us through that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so in 2019, uh, tuition was cut at Ontario's public colleges by 10%. So by any measure, our uh, tuition at public college is low and it remains low. In fact, it's the second lowest in the country. Um, and then subsequent to that tuition cut, it has been frozen ever since. So let's call it five years, coming on five years of freeze. Uh, The expert panel that you just referred to recognized that that tuition cut and then those many years of freeze has really had a detrimental effect on the ability to deliver the kind of cutting edge programs that colleges are known for. And really, frankly, that Ontario's economy and employers uh, need at this time. So we're calling on the government to implement that recommendation from the panel. It's a modest 5% increase. And it's really to be able to uh, ensure that we can deliver that kind of hands-on learning, uh, having that equipment on site that a graduate is going to encounter in the workforce. You know, we're really uh, focused on the needs of the labor market. And quite frankly, that equipment has gotten quite a lot more costly. We, we all could probably remember what we paid for tuition. I was both. I did, I did four years at university, two years at uh, Fanshawe College for broadcast mm-hmm. journalism. So I remember what I paid and I remember what my cost <laughs> of living was like. Where, where do tuition rates land? What's the variance of them for Ontario's colleges right now? Uh, you mean variance in terms of what? A, what's a yearly tuition uh, cost so, for an Ontario-born so student? The average in Ontario now is two thousand seven hundred dollars per year. So that's the second lowest in the country. And so, taking that at five percent, you're only really um, adding it up. Um, you know, one hundred and thirty-five dollars a year would yeah. be the difference. But I do want to say, you know, we're we're a public college system, and access to post-secondary is completely in our in our DNA, and that's a huge part of our mission and our purpose. So, to be clear, any increases in tuition, even modest ones that mm. we're proposing. I really need to be matched with increases in student financial assistance because we don't want to see anybody getting uh, 
left behind or losing the opportunity to pursue further education or training. I know, you know, international students are a massive story. And when I look at the numbers and I've referenced them before, there's been an exponential growth in an, in our international students. I think the majority of the population feels there's too many international students. Is that a, is that an opinion that gets discussed? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize, you know, Canada is facing some pretty significant demographic challenges and our workforce is, is shrinking and aging quite rapidly. So only a few decades ago, we had seven workers per retiree. We are moving, we're, we're at about three workers per retiree right now, and we're moving down to two. So, you know, I was out on campuses this summer and I really saw firsthand a lot of communities are trying to boost immigration to deal with an aging population. And in many cases, in, in a lot of smaller towns, uh, international students are providing a, a, a pipeline of talent. And these are smart, young, uh, brave people that are coming to fill employer needs both today. They and are, the but future. you've heard the, you've heard the argument that it's too it's too exponential in terms of growth. Conestoga and Kitchener, for example, has gone from seven hundred sixty three eight years ago to almost thirteen thousand. That's an add of twelve thousand forty five. And I'm not sure Kitchener, Guelph, these cities know where where to put everybody. And then there's a, that much of a move for part time jobs. It, 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 it cramps things up. Well, I think without a significant rebalancing of the domestic contribution to domestic education, uh, you know, international student revenue is often what is allowing us to keep programs and campuses open across the province. And I think this is the crux of the challenge because, yeah. uh, you know, Ontario, Ontario's public colleges traditionally have had two main sources of revenue, and that is student tuition. So cuts and freezes and operating grants. And those operating grants have also been frozen for the last five years. So everybody knows, right? Costs are going up every day, every year. Um, and we want to make sure that, you know, we're in 200 communities across the province. Yeah. So uh, that's not necessarily a low cost proposition. And to keep those campuses open uh, and, and again, keep those programs uh, meeting employer needs. Uh, the revenue needs to come from somewhere. Right. But would you be surprised if there ends up being a cap that the provincial government says, look, we get it, but it has to stop here. X is the number. You can't have any more international students than that based on your per capita issues and or, or your geography. Well, I think that's that's, uh, you know, that's not for me to say. Uh, I think every community has a different experience, different okay. needs. Every college is kind of at a different uh, place in that journey. Okay. I got a blast for right now, but I, I appreciate yeah. this. And, and yeah, like it's, it's, uh, it, there's no doubt community colleges and, uh, and, and universities facing many of the same issues. I, I hope we can chat again. Thanks very much for the time, Marquita. Me too. Thank you so much. All right. There's Marquita Evans joining us, the president of Colleges Ontario. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Nate Erskine-Smith is currently a Liberal MP for Beaches East York, and he's one of four candidates running for the Ontario Liberal Party leadership. Voting goes this week, Saturday and Sunday, for Liberal members. We've had you on before, and I think we've talked about it, but I want to drill down on, on international students. I mean, many communities are probably telling you when you've traveled that they see it as a crisis if you were premier. What would you do? What's what solves it? I think there are four things you ultimately have to do in a leadership role. One is you've got to partner with universities and colleges to get more housing built to accommodate student populations and make sure there aren't 
there there aren't those stresses for the students themselves, but also the greater municipality and and greater population neighborhoods. You got to protect students. We do see predatory recruiters. Students don't know all that they're getting into about the cost of living and otherwise. You got to, this is the big one, you've got to increase baseline operational funding so we don't see a continued growth and runaway on sustainability in the growth of international students because what are what are institutions doing? They're balancing their books on the backs of international students because they've got nowhere else to balance their books. Uh, and lastly, we should really be aligning as as you work towards reducing the number of international students overall and, and the runaway growth, you, you do have to align the students you're bringing in with where labor force demand ultimately is here in Canada. Yeah, all, all ideas. I think uh, it's got to be a balancing act. And the schools, the schools are kind of shrugging their shoulders right now, Nate, and saying, don't look at us for housing. And, and admittedly, they haven't really been given a lot of superpowers to help with that, but they certainly don't seem to, to think it's their responsibility either to help students look or to build more residences. No, the institutions have really seen international students as a, as a way to balance their books, and they haven't looked at the situation in a commensurate way to say, how are we going to make sure we help them in every possible way? Housing's one. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at satellite campuses. That's been a real challenge where you've got right. colleges from all across this province, but then they've got satellite campuses in particular parts of this province, especially in Peel. And those satellite campuses are really used to subsidize the overall operations. And, and that's not fair for students because they're not getting the full experience. And so, yeah, we've got to take a step back and, and look at where we are and how we got here and a big part of it is mm. just the lack of investment in post-secondary education by the provincial government. You're coming to the end of a, of a long run here of campaigning. What's your confidence level going into the weekend? Honestly, you asked me that three months ago. I'd say that's going to be a tough race, and, and you know we're doing our best, but I'm not sure how it all end up. We've run a great campaign. Momentum's on our side, and I'm feeling very confident heading into the weekend. What does a leader have to do to win the general election in 2026? That's There's 100,000 liberal members. I bet you most of them, they feel really energized. They're going to go out and vote on Saturday and Sunday for one of the four of you in a ranked ballot format. Uh, but it's about getting voter turnout out, which has been a struggle for the Liberal Party these last two elections. No mistake about it. What compels people to, to pick you or the other three candidates come 26? Yeah, so number one, we can't just be the not Doug Ford party. We tried that. The choice is yours. It didn't work. We've got to make sure we give people a positive reason to vote for us. And that includes exciting people to get to the polls and, and coming out to vote. People stayed home last election. That was a real challenge. We also look at the electoral map in Ontario. And we need to earn votes from frustrated progressive conservatives, the lack of integrity at Queen's Park, the corruption at Queen's Park, the, the lack of honesty. We're going to earn the trust of voters and bring them back to our party on the basis of delivering that integrity, that strong community-minded local representation, and that seriousness in our politics. But the real map is actually as against the NDP and Greens. When you look at 24% of people right now are saying they're going to vote for the NDP, 24% are saying they're going to vote for the Ontario Liberal Party, 8 or so percent say the Green Party. It's the exact same outcome today as it was in June of 2022 when we split the vote. And if we split the vote again, Congratulations to Mr. Ford. Well, you can't so you, you can't go from nine to sixty five without grabbing some NDP seats, is what you're saying. <laughs> You've got to earn the trust of progressive voters in this province. That is the path, 
And you do it by making sure you got a track record of principled and progressive advocacy in your leader. You make sure that you bring integrity, authenticity, and serious, the values that are missing at Queens Park. And you make sure that you bring new people into the party. We can't have the same team that's run campaigns for the last decade, two decades, doing this again. Nader Skin Smith, our guest on Toronto Today. You mentioned some of the cynicism about Doug Ford, but he's polling much better provincially than your current party is federally. So you've heard the complaints about your government. Sometimes you're on top and sometimes you're not. And the polls say your party's going to really struggle the next time there's election. Does that help or hurt the Ontario Liberals or even your own campaign? It hasn't affected provincial politics. And, and I'll say, look at Kanata Carlton. And you've got a former liberal MP, a colleague of mine, and Karen McCrimmon, who's on our team in this race. And she's now the liberal member of provincial parliament. And she won a riding in Kanata Carlton that has never been liberal before provincially. How did she do it? She had trust locally. She's a woman of integrity and authenticity. And people were looking to her to vote for her. We didn't. We don't even have a leader right now. And so yeah. I, I do think it's going to matter can you bring serious people into this party, people who are going to stand on behalf of their local communities and have the trust of their local communities? And if we do that, if we have Karen McCrimmons that are part of our party representing their home communities, I guarantee you we're going to be able to rebuild this party, whether they've been a federal liberal or not. Nate Erskine-Smith, one of four candidates for Ontario Liberal members Saturday and Sunday, the 25th and 26th, party members casting ranked ballots. The announcement of who won comes Saturday, December 2nd. Wish you the best and we'll reset after the second. Good luck. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Nate Erskine-Smith, our guest on Toronto Today.